Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We are meaningful. Hi, everybody. Welcome back uh, to our Burden of Proof panel. The burden is ours. Uh, We have a couple of amazing women on the call today, so we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to introduce themselves. Ladies, while you do that, could you please also tell us, would you rather eat a snack or be a snack? Well, I will go first. Um, I'll say we'll go in alphabetical order. Uh, My name is Andrea G. Tatum. Um, I'm the Senior Director of Corporate Equity Engagement at Catalyst, Inc. Um, I'm going to have to say I'm going to eat a snack, always eat a snack, which is probably why I've also decided I will never wear jeans again (laughs) post-COVID. I have eaten all the snacks. Um, during COVID, and I'm at COVID 19, 20, 25 ish in terms of weight gain. But that's okay because I find comfort in my husband's uh, banana bread. So I'm going to eat a snack. Black people do make banana bread. <laughs> I'm Kashana Palmer. For those of y'all who did not uh, join us right at the beginning, it is so wonderful to meet you, CEO of Kashana and Co. A management leadership learning company and founder of the Rooted Collaborative, a global community for women of color in fundraising in the social sector. And I will be a snack. I'm tasty and delicious and delightful. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Julkendi Valdez, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Forfa. We are a tech startup company working with universities, nonprofits, and employers to help prepare our young people, particularly youth of color, uh, for in-demand uh, careers. And we do that through uh, a training platform that we built leveraging AI. And I am also, I'm a foodie. Uh, I would love to eat a snack. Um, so, you know, from plantain chips to remind me of home, I'm Dominican, to uh, chips and whack uh, or anything that's <laughs> in our kitchen. Like Andrea, I've been spending you know, a lot of time at home and, and taking uh, snack breaks um, to, to really navigate this this time. So excited for the rest of the conversation. We are super excited to have the three of you join us for this conversation about our, this being our burden to bear. And I wanted, or we wanted to give everyone the opportunity to be light, to have some fun, to hear your intros, Um, and learn more about you and whether you want to be a snack or eat a snack. Um, And now it's going to get a little bit heavier um, before we go into the panel discussion. What we're going to do next is actually play the narrative that we have built this entire event around um, burden of proof uh, from our podcast, We Are Meaningful. So before we play that, just want to call out that this narrative may be triggering for some people. Please go on mute. Turn off the sound. It's going to take about three to four minutes for us to play this narrative um, and then come back to us. To whom it may concern, and it should concern us all. This isn't an isolated incident, but you knew that. We are constantly evolving to their expectations, adapting to their changing rules, navigating their unequal systems, and yet it still isn't enough. The burden of proof is always on us, and they get the presumption of innocence. How many stories, emails, recordings, articles, data, reports will it take? 
When will they have the evidence they need to commit to real change for us? They made the game, so they control the narrative and therefore the outcome. We're fighting for our rights within a system and space that was built to keep us down. And unfortunately, they also are the only ones with the true power to change it. Please! Please, I can't breathe! Please, man! Please, I'm right here! I'm asking you to be intentional. I'm asking you to be objective and equitable. I'm asking you to check your bias. I'm asking you to stand up and challenge. I'm asking for justice, but I'm also asking for the right to exist in peace. Please, 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 I can't breathe. Please, man. They are everywhere. They are our CEO, our executives, our managers, and our colleagues. They are secretly policing our black and brown employees. They're dishing out negative performance reviews because they can. They're scheming to disposition us. They are uncomfortable with the cultural differences. They mean well though, right? They are being protected and we are being maligned. They are validated every time we're harmed without reparation. They laugh and tell us it was never about race, but they're always the same folk and so are we. You know who they are. You might even belong to this elusive they. Do better. Sincerely, people of color. We can't breathe. So let's hop into the conversation. And Krista, I think you're starting for us, right? I so again, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to listen to it. Uh, those of you who did, I know that it can it can be a bit triggering, like we mentioned before, because we actually incorporate uh, George Floyd's murder into the narrative. Uh, so coming out of that and kind of hearing the narrative, what are your initial thoughts and reactions? And let's go ahead and uh, start with Yolkendi, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, so... so- Full disclaimer, I actually even watched the, the full video of George Floyd's murder. Um, I haven't gotten myself to do so. So the audio, um, when it when it came at the beginning, it was, it definitely took me uh, to, to, to a place. You know, I'm right here sitting 10 minutes from where, uh, when Michael Brown was shot. Um, I went to, to school in Ferguson. I, I grew up in Missouri. And seeing this happen is the reason that I left corporate America. And even as a startup founder, I interact conscious, um, continuously with investors. And as someone in diversity, inclusion, corporations, higher education, and in every meeting, every call that I have, it's, it's to me, uh, it's just unbelievable that as people of color, we're still not only having to prove our um, our bodies, our experiences, but even our the burden to prove our emotions, our anger, our our sadness. I can't simply cry any anymore without someone else validating that experience as as credible. And these are basic human rights, and we're still having to fight for that. You know, you look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is another white guy that created it. Because, again, who's creating the frameworks? And we're still here, the bottom of the chain, still fighting for our psychological needs yeah. and safety. So right now I'm at the starting point where I remind myself that my way to fight my own revolution is to let myself cry or to let myself to be angry, even in very public spaces, and find strength on that. Because even that right now is it, not allowed, and we have a long way to go. But... 
for us to feel that emotions is is a, is a is a genuine first step. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think for me, um, I listened to it one morning walking, um, and I listen to podcasts pretty much every morning on my walk. Um, and I was sort of stopped suddenly in my tracks. And that night I wrote a piece about the fact that, you know, we are, many of us are the walking dead at work in that we are constantly under siege and we are constantly, um, you know, crying out to your point, you can be to for somebody to hear us and for us to be valid, for our pain to be validated, for our cries to be validated. And at work, it just shows up differently, right? Like it just the ways in which we cry out um, show up differently. And it was just like a, such a visceral uh, reaction I had as a mother to hear him crying out for his mother, a grown, full, full grown man, um, and that our job as mothering is never done. Um, and so I have this sort of like wave of emotions a lot. And I realized that until I started working for myself, um, and even when I started working for myself, truly, like my first couple of years, I had sort of turned off a lot of that, the, the deep-seated emotionalness. And so I was saying to my daughter, I always say to her, tears are for the strong, they are not for the weak. Um, and yet not finding, not being able to cry, you know, like I just, and like, not because I don't want to, but because I just don't have it. Um, and I think it takes me listening to that narrative to even stir me up enough to release, um, what I've been holding on to across so many different, um, modalities as a professional, as a woman, um, and that just brought it all to the surface, you know? So I, I had a lot of sort of bubbling brook thoughts um, and the pain in that was so raw. And so like, it just, it catches you. Yeah. I, I still almost feel shaken just from, and I've listened to it several times and uh, there's a part at the end that just strikes me. And, and she simply says, we're asking for the right to exist in peace. Yeah. It seems so basic to exist in peace, to exist, to live, to have my life, to be able to go about, you know, day to day with peace. And, and as black people and people of color and black and brown, that peace is so far out there that I don't know what that looks like. And then at the end, she just says, do better. And it struck me because like when I first listened to this, just days before I had written a piece and that's literally what it was called. It was based on Maya Angelou's words saying, when you know better, do better. And I felt like that was, that was my way of screaming out to everyone that I had a network with of saying like, we're not okay. Like what's happening in the world right now is not okay. And, and you can do better. Like you all can show up and do better. And, uh, you know, beyond even the part with uh, George Floyd in this, um, when, when she talks about dishing out the bad reviews, I just keep hearing Amy Cooper. I keep hearing Amy Cooper in the park crying out, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And, and uh, in transitioning recently between jobs, I, I left a very interesting letter to the leadership of my last role that simply said, there are Amy Coopers in the workplace <laughs> that, that they can do better. And, and uh, they are in there secretly dishing out these bad reviews and BCCing bosses and, and all of those things. And I'm here to tell you, if you think these things aren't happening in corporate environments and only happened in that park or only show up as cops putting a knee on someone's neck, that's not it. And, and that's what we want change. And that's how we're going to be able to get peace of mind when we don't have that fear of someone calling, you know, a cop on us. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm so grateful for everybody's perspective um, on the narrative, especially um, adding in what your experiences have been walking through the world in and outside of corporate spaces. And to be honest with you, this is our narrative. And I feel uncomfortable listening to it, even though I've had to listen to it um, multiple times. It just feels I just feel so hurt, so traumatized um, just by thinking about it. And as Andrea, as you mentioned, um, there are Amy Coopers in the workplace and we know this to be true. So this first question is for Kashana. What does it mean for us? as black and brown women to bear this burden of proof that we're talking about? And does that, does that burden ever get lighter? And if so, how so? I think what it means for us is an early and untimely death. And what that means for me is it's in the stress weight. I was in the session earlier. We were talking about the weight in the gut, you know, it is where we carry the pain, um, where we can't get rid of the blood pressure and the stress. Sometimes it's not because we're neglecting ourselves. It is because literally we are under siege from the minute we open our eyes between the responsibilities that we have in our immediate homes, in our extended families, and then when we step into the workplace, both from our actual functional functional roles to the undercurrent that or the riptide that we have to deal with, with team members and subordinates and bosses, et cetera, like we're under siege. And so I think what that burden does for black women unduly is it, it ages us. It ages us. It dries us out like dry skin sitting in the sun too long. It makes us angry, not the angry black woman that, People like to, to trot out and call us at work, but truly angry in our relationships, in the way that we are in community with our children, in our inability to form really tight relationships, particularly later in life with other women, in the ways in which we step into our entrepreneurial ventures. It makes us upset. It makes us fearful of trusting. So that earlier trust question we talked about. So it puts us immediately on the defensive and I can feel my years stripping away just by saying it out loud. And then when we have to bring that into work, it means that we are constantly figuring out, are we in Mortal Kombat? Are we in Zelda? Are we in another game? What game are we in? We're in Jumanji level 26. Like what level of game are we playing right now? And finding that we are constantly fashioning uh, defenses and equipment to navigate in real time. And you're not able to do your best work when you're constantly having to find a way or make one. And so we wear that as a, a, a cape of pride, but that comes at a cost. The, the underlining is stripping away that, that, that lining in our cape, you understand? And so I think what it does is it wears us down. It grinds us like a mortar and pestle. Um, clearly I must be hungry, the darn snacks, thinking about all the food analogies I've been given. Um, but to me, like that's what it, it, it really brings to me, like the, the literal work, the physical labor. And most of us are in corporate jobs using intellectual labor, that executive function, which is why we're exhausted. And then we're doing construction level work intellectually at work too as well. So I think that it just, it, it feels like an anchor that I'm carrying like this while having to work. Um, I don't know how else to sort of describe it, but hopefully I'll get in, get in the picture I'm laying out. Yeah, I mean, and just on top of that, the emotional tax that it takes to have to just completely carry all of that. And you said it so well, Kishana, that you're, you're carrying a weight, you know, and, uh, you know, if you're having to constantly prove yourself, it's like pushing a boulder up a hill and there's nowhere to like put it to the side for a moment so that you can breathe, so that you can rest. It's just a constant fight with, you know, pushing the boulder uphill and all the obstacles that are in front of the boulder. And it's just like, how, how are you supposed to win in that battle? Um, but yeah, what you said, so real. Like I, I go to a massage therapist and she constantly says, what's going on with your shoulders? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I carry it. I carry it all here I carry. Sure. I Here said, yeah, um, you know, and as someone who's a, a DNI, you know, DEI practitioner, there are days I said I feel like I'm carrying this for my ancestors, 
for myself and for everybody who's going to come after me. And that is a heavy burden to have to carry constantly because I need people to know, like, it's not about just me. It's it's all of us that this this is about caring and fighting for. Yeah, one of the things yes. that came up in our session um, was about the fact that as black and brown women, anything that we do impacts the people that come after us. If I make a mistake, then that means every black woman that comes in the door after me, it's almost like she also made that same mistake. And she also has the same issues that I may have had in this in whatever role that we're talking about. So it definitely is a really heavy burden to carry to think about all the people that are coming after you and how your actions impact them. Yeah, and I think, you know, you you spoke to it earlier, but it's not that just because you're code switching, you're stress switching, right? Just because you go into a space and things are changing, uh, the way that you behave or the way that you interact with that space doesn't mean that your stress is any different. And in fact, it could even be amplified. So um, I, I think the that was why it was so important for us to bring the burden of proof narrative in onto this platform, which is traditionally reserved for narratives that are around corporate spaces, right? And working in corporate spaces, George Floyd has everything to do with what happens in the workplace. And what we're talking about on this podcast every week has everything to do with what happened with George Floyd outside of the office, because you can't turn on, on and off. Okay. You can't turn discrimination on and off. That's not how it works. Um, so to you, Kendi, what responsibilities do white allies have, especially in positions of power in and outside of the workplace? Yeah, you know, I, I want to hold our allies and allyship to a higher standard. But, you know, as uh, as I continue to um, observe day by day, we're just not there yet. Um, you know, uh, instead, why I'm usually interacting with well-intended people that decide to uh, mansplain everything and the best practices and to say to see all sides and not just to see it from anger. Um, someone literally last week um, and, you know, you would think we're working from home, we're in Zoom, we're safer. But now people with their mindsets are creeping up into our homes they have complete control of, 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 of my nonverbal communication. So I'm not even allowed to respond and feel because I either in the moment have to decide, you know, kind of because my actions affect who comes after me, if, uh, you know, either I speak out and say, Hey, this, this is wrong. Or, um, or I might want to get the next meeting is connected to a business opportunity. So we're always putting this not ideal scenarios in the first place and having to decide. So that adds another, another layer. So, you know, a lot of allies, I think, are masquerading as white saviors. It's, it's really just coming back and coming out, oh, how can we help minorities? And still not understanding what we're talking about. Actually, we're not minorities anymore. This is a growing population that if we don't begin to adapt our, our practices, we're leaving an entire generation out. And, you know, a lot of my work I focus on, but I mentioned youth of color, and you're talking about Generation C. They're already 48% people of color. Uh, this is this is urgent. We really need to address this. So um, we, I think, allyship begin to, to shift when we realize that allyship doesn't mean you're the hero or you have to mentor or you have to save someone else. Allyship is getting out of the way, making space, hiring, promoting, and engaging black talent. And if you're not ready to do that, it's fine, admit it, but that's the time that allies need to take to fully educate themselves, but not put the onus on, on people of color. There's, there's Google, there's a lot of reading lists out there. You have to do the tough work. So I think that, you know, for those of you um, that are constantly being reached out by white men or, or allies saying, hey, can you tell me more about your experience? Don't let that burden fall on you of this entire systemic issue. Don't be afraid to send them to Google and to other resources out there. That's, that's, not, our, that's not our job. Um, 
So, so that's, I think that's where we are. Allyship, there's a long way to go there as well. Somebody said in the comments and you, you kind of alluded to it, but sometimes being an ally just means getting out the way, move, move out my way. If you can be, you know, what is it like a, like a bulldozer? If you can help create that space for me, sometimes it means like, do you need to be the person that is speaking? Do you need to be the person that pulls focus in a meeting or if you get asked to speak at something as an ally, what space are you taking up that maybe should be space for someone else to take up? And I think that really says so much in terms of how an ally shows up is when they can say, I'm not the voice you need to hear in this moment. Actually, the voice you need to hear is that of someone else who this is their their lived experience or their professional experience. And especially when you're in a, a place of power I, I had one of those white men send me that, how can I do better email? And, and I just told him, you know, what would Peter Parker say? With, with great power comes great responsibility. And you have the responsibility to ensure that the people who work with you, who don't look like you, have space to be able to excel. You've already, you've already excelled. Now move out the way for the next person. Give them a seat. Give them the space to do that. Um, I love that point that you brought up about getting out of the way, because in one of our most recent podcast episodes, we talked to our friend Dominique Collins, and she talked about people who are doing inclusion and diversity work and how there are so many people who feel that this is a shiny object, like a shiny thing. So let me just chase that shiny thing because they think that our roles are just about heritage months and cultural celebrations. And it's like, no, that is not what our job is. Um, all you see is what the outcomes are, but we are in the trenches. And if you are not willing to be in the trenches, if you are not willing to ensure that your organization is being reflective and introspective and doing transformation, then get out of the way. You need to sit down because you are taking up space that should be taken by someone else. Kishana, were you going to add something? No, I'm just thinking. No, I don't. I don't. I feel like the, the Peter Parker. I'm using that just so you know, Andrea. So just thank you so much because listen, I'm I'm here for all of the professional snark. Sometimes you just need to just land a good quote. I'm like, as they said on Friends, I love to pull out a good episode or something that I know will be a Peter. You know, yeah. Let's talk about Thirty Rock. You know, like I, I, it just helps me just get to where I need to go. Yeah. Um, but you know, so no, I think this is this is perfect. My lots of folks asked me. I was on a town hall this week, um, and there's the question that came up the most was how to underscore, how to fill in the blank, how to. And I said, when you when you look at shows like The Biggest Loser, most people see the show, the 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 extreme things folks go to to turn over a new leaf or to show up a new way to lose weight, etc. And they see the outcome, the money, and how they show up to their family and their friends. But what they don't see is what happens before that person decides to put in an application. And that is the decision that they have had enough. Mm-hmm. Enough of whatever was happening that makes them decide to do that thing. Money is not the driver. It's too crazy of a process to make for that to be your only driver. And so what I'm going to need folks to do is decide. Like that is actually the hardest decision you need to make and that you have had enough. And whether you understand it or not. And any any of us know that when you really want to learn something new, you go and figure it out. Like, is it something that is out of your reach? That's what YouTube University, the Googles, and all other tomes that are free are for. Yes. So help yourself to that and then come back to me. I don't care if you come back to me like a librarian at checkout with all the books and say, well, you know, I had these things and I've read them. It's a lot. Have you read them? Can we talk about them? That's a whole different conversation than what do I need to do? When you said, how do I blank? I thought, how do I mind my own business? Thinking about (laughs) Amy Cooper and those who are like her. Yeah, yeah, I love that one. That's a good one. Mind my business. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I think we have a question in the chat from Gabby. So, Andrea, you touched on past cultural trauma. Can we talk about how intergenerational trauma impacts us? Um, How does it impact us day to day in the workplace? What does it look like? 
Yeah, this is something that um, is still actually really new for me, but I've been doing a lot of research for like, it's, it's insane to me to think about the fact that you do and what I understand, and again, not an expert in, in trauma, or, um, but I, I have been looking into this, is that you carry between five to seven generations worth of trauma with you. Um, and what we're experiencing right now is also compounded trauma. So if you think about we're experiencing COVID-19, we're experiencing you know, having to shelter in place. Uh, you're experiencing just racism constantly in your face. Um, it, it's hard to know what you feel. You know, there are things that I maybe personally never experienced. I am not old enough to have been in the civil rights movement, but that feeling, that experience, that fear that I know what did happen there I carry that with me every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think about it. It's it's in my mind, you know, and I, I know this even sounds silly, but like I'm, I'm afraid of dogs because the picture in my mind, I'm from Nashville and there are so many images of dogs just being let loose by police onto people who were, you know, protesting at the lunch counters. That's ingrained inside of me. Never happened to me. But I carry that weight with me constantly as I navigate the spaces that I'm in. You understand that, you know, spaces weren't created for you. Our, our, our ancestors, our, our grandparents, let's be honest, had to fight to just be able to drink from the same water fountain. That's in my mind constantly that like, oh, just a few years ago, I didn't have access to the things that you did. But what do you think about that? So, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And I just started a new book um, called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, and I had oh. to double check because I, <laughs> I have it sitting here behind. And, I, and, I, and I'm really recommending to check it out because it talks about um, what we are still carrying with us. So it is a new area for me, but it's, uh, it's deep. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Krista? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm taking a look at your questions. We had a really good one that was kind of a cross between Sharmila and Tisha, uh, which is what is the concrete work that white allies must do? And how do you answer the question when a white ally asks, what can I do? Yeah, I think one of the things that has been that has resonated most with me when I've seen it in action um, is back to our earliest conversation about social capital. When you are willing to burn it up, because unlike the social capital for us, which is long, takes a long time to build, doesn't seem to come back, it is, it is not a rubber band. Um, for most white folks, it is a rubber band. It does come back. It is replenishable. It does feel more like the buffet. And so one of the ways you can action is being able to literally step in front of your coworker at work and be like, that's, see that? We're not going to do that. Mm-mm. That's out of line. Or, hey, I don't understand what's happening here, but I think we need to take five because what's happening right now, I am largely uncomfortable. Uh, if you're prone to tears, use your tears in defense of me. I do not understand what is happening to Kashana right now, and we need to take a break. Whatever ways that you can action, demonstrating that you may not get it yet all the way down to the bits, but that you know something is not right, and you are willing to do something about it, even if you don't know what the exact steps to take are, and that you're willing to be flexible enough to go, oh, that wasn't quite right. All right, I get it. Like we're adults at this point, we should be able to be, should be able to be self-aware enough to understand nuance. And the second thing is stop ignoring the things that you know you've been seeing for a long time. The number of comments I've seen in the bigger forums that I've done in the last couple of weeks where folks have said some version of, I knew that it was wrong, but I was afraid because I thought I would lose my job. I thought that I would get retribution. I thought I would be on the outside. I worked really hard to get on the inside, particularly from women. I think is really, really, really critical. And the part that we're not talking about here, which I think is something we can come back to, is what happens, and I saw it in the comments, when there are non-Black and brown POCs who also benefit from proximity to whiteness. And how that 
takes away from folks' ability to really step into allyship and co-conspiratorship in a real way. Mm -hmm. I think we see some um, other comments in the chat as well about what you can do um, to step up as a white ally uh, coins. So you want to pay people for their voices, for their time. Don't try to just pick their brain because we get that all the time. Can I pick your brain? Uh, so you want to make sure that you are compensating people who you are taxing with the things that you want to know more about um, outside of obviously educating yourself. Um, there's something else in the chat as well. Let's see. Y'all are typing, 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 typing. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, Victoria also mentioned, like, if you are a hiring manager, how are you making sure that there are there's more black representation, um, that your processes in general are objective, that they aren't subjective, that you are challenging people who are making decisions based on, I feel like I'm like this person, so I'm going to hire them because they feel comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. So that is a, that is another thing that you can do. Um, and then we also got a question about white tears and somebody said something and it cracked me up. I had a chuckle. Michaela, <laughs> she said, an older black woman colleague of mine is a fan of simply saying, here's a tissue. You can take some time to collect yourself. Then we'll resume the discussion. Say it with a calm and straight face. Ooh, a warm, Crystal in your voice. I just want to hear you say it. <laughs> Everybody wants to hear Crystal say it. Crystal, you can hear Crystal in your voice so I can hear it again. Go ahead, let me hear Here's a tissue. You can take some time to collect yourself and then we can resume the discussion, but not with the hand, because the hand is like, hand. <laughs> let me clutch you. <laughs> can we talk about the hand for a minute? Yeah. Can we just, yes. I, you know, maybe this will also help the allies. You know, I, um, Keyshawn, I love some of the things you said earlier um, today. It, I have chosen how I now show up in a place of work for many, many years. You know, I had, you have to learn to navigate. It, it is a learning process to learn how you decide to show up. But I've made it very clear now when I go through interviews, when I show up, this is who I am. I'm loud, I cuss a little, and I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think. And all of this, the hands, do not be afraid. I'm just, I'm animated. And I've had people just be like, oh, she's so this, she's so that, she's, you know, she's a little overbearing. You don't need to be afraid of my hands. You don't, you know, I'm not here to fight you. You know, this is an expression. This is an extension of my voice. And when people decide to, you know, try to make how we show up, black women also tend to, by face, all the emotions are in our face. Don't try to read too much into it. Let us be, let us live. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and that, the policing, that that's what really it's all about. Like the policing yes. of my voice, the policing of my gestures, how I show up. I don't have time for that. And I make it very clear up front when I go into an interview now. Like if this is going to be a problem when I show up in a boardroom or anywhere else, I'm probably not the person you want to hire. So thank That's you. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Somebody was telling the truth in this interview process. Yeah. And, and that, I, that it was me. It's going to be me. Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing we... People of color do the extra work also of having, we talk a lot about our own internalized racism. We, we have to na navigate, you know, how do we show up at work? We have a lot, a lot of conversations. So sometimes it's like, I want you to have that conversation too, but amongst yourself to talk about privilege and to talk about, uh, you know, white fragility and to have us talk about as much as we do, but not like, and that's a sign that you're re really ready to do the work. The sign is not you right away are ready to talk to me about it if you haven't had your own conversation. So I think that's it's just amazing the amount of extra time. You know, we talk about getting ready for work. No, it's for us, it's not just like, you know, 
putting on what we're going to wear, makeup, think of our agenda. We also do this whole level of preparation and the workplace will be so much different if also um, our allies do that same level of preparation and thinking about their own experiences and how they interact their privilege with others. Yes, yes. I love that everyone is in the chat talking about how they show up in interviews as yourself. That is so important. And I think it's so important for many of us to recognize that we have options. We have choices. We can decide where we want to work and where we don't want to work. So for me personally, I do show up as me. I'm going to show up when I wasn't when I didn't have locks and I was natural. I showed up with my fro. I'm going to show up sounding Southern. I'm going to show up as me, no matter where it is that I am. It took me some time to get there, but I am confident with me. And if I walk into a job interview and they don't feel comfortable with me, I don't belong there. And I will say two things. One, that we are interviewing our employers. And so a good litmus test of whether there's going to be place and space for you to continue to thrive in a place is if you is when you show up as who you are, as who you'd want to come in to work as every day and folk are not like this. Because we're not going there for shock and awe. Some of us do, though. Some folks be like, I just want to show you. We're not, not going for shock and awe, okay? This is a good test to see, like, how's this going to flow for my comfort when I work there? Um, and the second thing I will say is one of my mentors said to me many years ago, always be looking. There's not never a time that you should not be interviewing, ever, never, and never, which is why it's so important mm-hmm. in terms of building social capital in terms of seeking out um, coffee dates and mentor relationships with intention. I'd love to be able to talk to you because you are a woman or a man I respect in this industry. I love 15 minutes of your time. I have three questions I'd love to talk with you about. Can I walk and talk with you if they're in your company or one that's further by? Um, Can we talk on Zoom really quick? Whatever it is, we don't have to meet up for coffee because that might be a two hour trip, round trip for Mm -hmm. someone for 15 minutes of their time. And so thinking about how to always be looking um, so that you continue to always be in control of your options. And I think many of us get into the place and we get so into the day-to-day of navigating the system and having to do all the tricks and the dance that we are so worn out, we don't look. And so I think those two things for me are have been really, really important and salient points in my career to keep front and center so that I don't lose sight of myself um, and that I don't lose hope. Uh, we had a really good one that was kind of talking about an element of like performatism that we had mentioned. I don't know if it was in the session, but right. Um, what do you think about organizations posting hashtag Black Lives Matter statements, uh, but their executive team doesn't have any people of color or maybe they're not being explicit about the action that they're using uh, to follow up to combat all of the racism and systemic oppression that's happening? It is frustrating to see those comments come out without acknowledging. I think that's the biggest part of it for me is we know we have change um, that has to come. Some of this work does take time. I don't expect CEOs just to quit tomorrow and all of a sudden all white CEOs are replaced with black CEOs. That to me is not realistic. The problem is they haven't been listening they've been told this is a problem for a very long time. So when I started seeing the blackouts and, you know, the, we're going to add this, I am glad that it has raised the consciousness higher because the people who've been doing this work have been shouting it from the rooftops and it's been falling on deaf ears. So great. You are now aware. Welcome. Welcome. Let's make the change. So what I want for people to do is say, we haven't done enough. We acknowledge it. Just acknowledge the fact that you're not where you should be. Mm-hmm. That's how you start to make the change. We will take all the change from here moving forward because we can't look backwards. We're, we're done with what you have or have not done. We've got to all look forward now. So you've made your statement. But what I'd like to see in more of those statements is here's where we are. Here's what we're committed to doing. And in that commitment, 
is continuing to listen and learn because the fact is they're moving too fast. There's some of these organizations who are just like, okay, great. We've got to hurry up and get our Black Lives Matter statement out. But what you haven't done is dug in to do the work to figure out what's going to actually make the changes in those companies. So my preference would be to see companies say, yes, Black Lives Matter. Yes, we have work to do. Here's how we're going to get started. And we're going to provide you additional updates along the way. I love what Andre said about just like taking a moment from here and moving forward. Like that to me is so awesome because I feel like oftentimes we want to have, you can't, you don't can't have revisionist history at this point. And so what now? And I, I would just love to see more companies have some version of, uh, we know we flubbed this whole thing up. Uh, our employees have been saying this to us for the last 12 years. Uh, maybe more, more people have died enough now. We're done. And so now here's what we are deciding to do. We're going to listen and then act. We're going to decide that we're going to do then then share. Sorry. And so we'll be back with what we've done as opposed to here's what we're going to do. Because we love to say, we love to um, share and then potentially act um, as opposed to doing it and then sharing. And so I would love to see that reverse. Yes. And I think those comments actually bring us to our final question uh, for the panel is that we all, I think we all see this as a turning point in our history because everyone is calling what's going on right now kind of the accelerated civil rights movement. So what do you think is different this time and what do you hope for? And we'll start with Andrea. I feel like I talk a lot. Y'all, I know I talk a lot. (laughs) We love you though. We love all of you. Keep talking, girl. Um, So I I struggle with accelerated because the fact to me is that I, I feel like this is an extension of the civil rights movement. There are people who've been fighting this fight nonstop, 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 right? You know, and we are, we are blessed that we have these activists in our lives still who are like, I was, I was there beside Dr. King. I was there beside Malcolm X, right? But they've still been fighting. And, you know, and I keep thinking about this song, right? I think it's uh, Gil Scott Heron who said like the revolution will not be televised. The revolution is, this is, this is where we're at. We are, we are seeing a revolution right now and, and it is being televised because not because the mass media thought like, I think it would be a good idea for us to talk about in, you know, incarceration and this, that's not what it is. It's the people who are every day feeling this fight and the struggle who are showing it. It's, it's really the change in access to, you know, the Facebook lives and the Instagrams, it's it's the social media is putting it in front of the world in, in a way that it can no longer be ignored. We can't get past, you know, a news cycle and it get, you know, bumped down anymore. It's in your face, the news and everybody else. And, you know, what's different right now in this moment is that we're probably in COVID. And, and that's really what is, you know, the layer on top is that you don't have anywhere to run and hide to ignore it. You can't just skip off because your son's got a soccer game. You're going to sit in this mess with us. You're going to sit in it. And you have to sit in it and own it. So what it really is now is that white people are realizing, oh, white people have been saying that, but now I'm seeing it every day. And, and they're having to get on board and own their contributions to this and think about how they can, can help. And I think that's really the difference to me is that like between social media and the mass media having to to acknowledge what's happening, that's why it feels accelerated because we're actually really seeing it um, every day. Again, so that's another thing for um, that Generation C folks born 1996 to 2010, they're digital natives. So if, if you're not talking about it, your kid's gonna bring it up at home. So, and you're going to have to figure out a way to tell that narrative and what side you're going to be on and what, what are you passing on to, to, to your children and, you know, that are engaging this TikTok after TikTok, story, a lot of visuals, a lot of videos carrying these messages. And, you know, to connect it to the other questions, there's some companies saying, do I have to write a statement every time? Because they're like, oh, crap, is it now every, every week? 
what do I say? And so you can almost tell where companies at in terms of, you know, how they're writing that 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 statement because some of them are flooded with with quotes from um, that had that are nothing to do with what's going on and it shows you mm-hmm. like really they're not doing the work to to understand it right and we were joking earlier about responding with quotes but maybe we should because that's how uh, they they talk to us to kind of avoid that bigger conversation so I think a statements and what's going in social media is full of hypocrisy and irony but it's it's a good measurement tool now to see um, what companies are actually thinking about this um, and which companies are just simply using that uh, as a marketing tool. So I agree right now it's really um, social media and working from home and pandemic that's not going to go away maybe for yeah. the next year and a half. And we're, we're going to have to sit on it, talk with our children, our siblings about it. And, and, and we cannot longer kind of run away from that bigger conversation. Yeah. And if they're sharing their plan, we can now hold them accountable as employees, also as customers, whoever they're interacting with. If they have shared what that plan is, I need you to I need to be able to cash that check that you wrote. No, I was going to say that's actually something that I've started to leverage, too. If, um, you know, if so and so company puts out a statement and then I'm getting challenged on the back end, I'm like, oh, well, wait a minute. We just said we don't agree with systemic oppression. So let's have a conversation about these different systems and processes that you're looking to perpetuate that keep black people at the bottom. You can't, you can't have, what is that saying? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Although I don't know the saying, but you get the sentiment. And I I think now is the time for us to, um, to, to use what's happening in this movement and to also use it to propel what's happening in our workplaces too. I don't think that they should continue to be delineated, which is why it was important for us to bring George Floyd and corporate America together, because the idea is that everything that's happening in the streets, all of this protesting, all of this movement, everything that's happening in the house with policy and legislation, now is the time for us to use this momentum and to push for change, um, even though it's what we've been doing in the in the workplace. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for having this conversation with us about it being our burden to bear many times in and outside of the workplace and really giving the allies who are listening well obviously acknowledging that this is going on with us especially for those of us who look like us who are listening in but then also for those folks um, who aren't black or brown or who don't identify as being black or brown What is it that you can do if you're saying that you're an ally because it is an action, not a noun? What can you do to elevate, to amplify black voices and black people by spending your coins? And then also how we can respond when people are asking us to take on more emotional texts when they want to learn more about our experiences. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.